Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. I must say, it's very easy for me to feel delighted this time of year, not just because this man simchatenu, as the rabbi described so beautifully yesterday, the meaning of that word, the season of our joy, but because I have such fond memories of Sukkot and this season in the Jewish calendar. Growing up in South Jersey by a farmstead, it was this time of year when the leaves began, began to change. Apple and pumpkin picking became weekly activities. The air got chillier, fireplaces were lit for the first time, and there was a special sense of relief that came from the breaking of the summer heat, not unlike Richmond. And long before I associated this month or so with flannel and pumpkin spice, the latter of which I strongly believe has no place in coffee beverages, I can talk to you later, I found immense happiness in building and decorating a sukkah with my community. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that there is more to this holiday than paper chain decorations and apple picking, and yet the sukkah, perhaps obviously, remains a central feature. That said, the significance of constructing and dwelling in a sukkah for the holiday season, um, and for the holiday's duration, excuse me, has been elevated and continues to take on added meaning with each passing year. The end of our Torah portion today introduces this commandment. Following a lengthy discourse on Shabbat, Passover, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, we see the cycles of our lives laid out in this parsha nesting the rhythm of our community into weekly, seasonal, and yearly cycles. Sevens and Shabbat pulsate through the text, and we finally arrive at the concluding instruction on Sukkot. You shall observe it as a festival of the divine for seven days in the year. You shall observe it in the seventh month as a law for all time throughout the ages. Basukot teshvu shivat yamim, you shall live in booths seven days. All citizens in Israel shall live in booths. Laman yadeu in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am your God. Setting aside the eternal, universal, pedagogical nature of living in Sukkot for seven or eight days, depending on your custom and location, the most extraordinary part of this explanation is that the divine didn't make our ancestors live in Sukkot when we went forth from Egypt. In case you're like racking your brain for this, our rabbis in the Talmud catch on to the fact that there are no mentions of Sukkot in the four books that describe our wandering. They try to figure out if this is meant to be literal or metaphorical, with Rabbi Akiva representing the former, that they were mamash Sukkot, like really Sukkahs, and Rabbi Eliezer arguing the latter, that the Sukkot mentioned here are a metaphor for the cloud of God's glory, anane kavod, that accompanied us in the desert. The debate isn't resolved, though. For the record, Rashi is on team metaphor, and I feel it unwise in this situation to disagree with him. <laughs> cloud imagery follows us into our Haftorah portion today, where we see the temple's dedication and Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, has the two tablets of the covenant brought into the Aron HaKodesh, the temple ark. At that time, the Ha'anan Malay at Beit Adonai, a cloud, fills the house of the Lord, and Shlomo declares that the divine has chosen Lishkon Ba'arafel to dwell in a thick cloud. 
While the temple is far more permanent structure, the sukkah metaphors enter the reading too, where we learn a few lines earlier that the cherubim or cherubim, uh, golden statues in the likeness of angelic beings, um, spread out their wings like a sukkah, porosim, their porosim, they say. Shlomo, as an agent of the Holy One, has set the place for the ark beneath a near heavenly sukkah, containing the covenant with which the divine made with our ancestors when God brought them out of the land of Egypt. But say, That last phrase will sound familiar since it bookends our Torah reading too. At the beginning, we see and at the end, we read and we also see Ani Adonai Elohechem twice, both at the beginning and end, but also at the end and the very, very middle, right? The sort of callback structure that's typical of Tanakh. When we <coughs> see Ani Adonai Elohechem with the all important commandment to leave the edges of the field and the gleanings of our harvest for the poor and the stranger. While that line refers to Shavuot in context, like the Torah in the center of the Aron, these lines feel like the perfect Torah around which we should build our Sukkot for these readings. The Hebrew words pores, Sukkot, and even Kanfecha, or wings, in our Haftorah, coupled with a Parsha that demands that we guard divine mitzvot and do them, echoes important language from the Hashbi Venu, the second blessing of our Mari Shema, Ufros Aleinu Sukkot Shlomecha. Spread over us your sukkah of peace, we pray each night, beseeching the Holy One like a divine parent, so appropriate for this high holiday season, to guard us as we prepare to fight, face the night and its uncertainties. It's striking that in a blessing about protection, security, and shelter, our model is a sukkah. <laughs> At a time of night when our routine might include locking the front door, or perhaps turning on an alarm, if that's your custom, our tradition invokes a flimsy, temporary, exposed structure that doesn't even have a front door. And in doing so, our Sukkot teach us an important lesson about God's peace and our role in building a whole and holy society. I sense it won't be a revelation to any of you that the holiday of Sukkot is about acknowledging life's transients, expressing gratitude for the earth and its goodness, and sharing our blessings with the most helpless in our community in a way that sustains the earth wonders and makes it possible for future generations to do the same. But as my soccer coach used to say, and sometimes shout in a Welsh accent at the most inopportune times, just kiss, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> I offer it with humor and I know it might sound a little trite, but like the college students with whom I work who know they need eight hours of sleep a day, but frequently get four, I realize we may know that it's on us to care for the most vulnerable, even if we sometimes forget or lose sight of how exactly to do that. There's a section in Maseket Sukkah, the section of Talmud that describes the holiday of Sukkot and its rituals that speaks extensively about the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, which despite its name, often plays a role in our self-preservation. Toward the end of the discussion, Rav Asi said, initially when it begins to incite someone, entice someone, excuse me, the evil inclination is like a strand of a spider's web. And ultimately, it is like the thick rope of a wagon. This feels like the wisdom of placing the first nail in a sukkah at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. After the purification we undergo, both individually and collectively on Yom Kippur, we might begin to turn astray as easily as one could walk through a single spider web. And as imperceptible as that first decision may have been, the habit builds until we are pulled for the wrong practice.
true to the theme of our high holidays at Bethel, there's power in the in-between and how we transition out of that space is just as powerful as the encounter within. But differently, our realizations are only as revolutionary as our capacity to make them real. So from that space of renewal, forgiveness, and life, we put our first nail in the sukkah, we make real the impulses of compassion, love, and justice, so that the force that pulls on us each year is one of mitzvot and goodness, rather than the selfish rope of the Yetzer Hara. Without judgment, I'm curious, how many people here built a sukkah in some way this year, either your own in the backyard here? And for those with their hands raised, thank you. How many of you did it completely by yourself? Anyone? You did? You're going to have to. Uh, you're, you're, okay, that counts. That counts as help. I ask because, I mean, I, I at least needed the help of my, of my toddler, and I call it help, but it was questionable how, how helpful it was. <laughs> and I ask really because Arne Nass, the Norwegian philosopher and originator of the term deep ecology, so fitting for our harvest season, claims that our own personal self-realization is limited by the self-realization of others. That is to say, the higher levels of self-realization any one person attains, the more their development, the more our development is limited by the betterment, fulfillment, and flourishing of every other living being, human and non. So not only do we need partners in the building of a sukkah, family or others that we may enlist, we need to find and be partners in the manifesting of a truly healed earth. I'm gonna skip over all of the pieces that I noted between um, the high holidays last week and hug this week about how we are constantly getting other messages this time of year in our national secular calendar about what it looks like to live together. But I'll end with this. Our security is based not on keeping others out, but inviting the other in. Our peace isn't about possessing the bigger sword, but pursuing and building a just society. Our own wholeness isn't achieved in isolation, but in a fragile, vulnerable, open-hearted relationship with the world around us. That path may feel shrouded by insecurity at times, or in the spirit of the spooky season covered by a dense fog. And yet, our readings today remind us that the divine is found amidst cloudiness. In their commentary on Hashki Venu, and the Sukkot Shalom it envisions over us, our people in Jerusalem. Lawrence Kushner and Nehemia Polin observe that all human work, I quote, is unfinished. Whatever we achieve is based on divine assistance and the legacy of those who preceded us. We function in the in-between time. This is our area of action, of receiving the gift of our legacy and providing for the future. I think of their words as we surround ourselves in the fragile shelter symbolic of God's presence and peace, as we dwell with our loved ones past and present, and as we open our hearts to the rhythm of the world in need of us and our partnership. I hope that in our Simcha, we can each find gratitude for the people and planet our lives depend on, and whose lives and existence depend on our own vision, compassion, and sacrifice. May we all continue that unfinished work together this year, and may we find life-giving, soul-nourishing joy in each new nail we place in our earthly imitation of the divine's Sukkot Shalom. Amen. This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. 
Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.